First Peter chapter 4, we only look at verse 1 through 6. Peter has uh, declared the threefold aspect of Christ in the previous chapter, verse 18 through 22. As he has died on the cross, descended down to Hades, preached the victory, and was enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And so Peter calls the believer to comprehend the victory over sin by the vicarious sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross for the believer. Um, and here he does that in verse 1 through 6. In verse 1 through 3, the, we have the Christian commitment to life in the Spirit that he deals with first. And then secondly, he'll move on in verse 4 through 6 um, regarding the pagan's response to the Christian's commitment to life in the Spirit. People don't like when you come to Christ. People don't like when I came to Christ. Um, it it, it uh, destroys harmony sometimes in marriages, sometimes in families, sometimes relationships. Jesus said, I didn't come um, to bring peace, but a sword to put father against mother, mother against father, son, daughter, son, and so forth. Not willfully and purposely to create trouble, but that when a person makes a decision for Christ, there is a divide between light and darkness that even in the closest relationships, sometimes it's intolerable by the unbeliever. And um, we see this through history as well as through scripture. So let's begin here in chapter 4, 1 through 6. You have the sufferings of the believer in the flesh due to the new birth. In verse 1 through 3, the new life of the believer in Christ, the relationship with the sufferings of Christ on the cross. But the believer says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us, in the flesh. Therefore, once again, the word of conclusion. What precedes it, this is the conclusion of it. In view of the facts, the conclusion that Christ suffered for us in the flesh, made us alive in the spirit, and to bring us to God, as verse 18 said of the previous chapter. And so, um, the letters are like normal letters. They're connected with uh, thoughts, and um, sometimes you come to a concluding part, and it's a sub sub um, summation of everything that precedes it. And this is such the case here. Um, that Christ suffered once and for all for sins. Um, this is the result, as he said there in uh, chapter 3, verse 18. Notice the connection that um, he suffered for us in the flesh on the cross is the victory over sin and sin nature by Jesus Christ. For the believer, not for himself, for he had no sin um, and yet he was 100% God, 100% man, identical to the first Adam, being the last Adam. The word suffered is a participle or is active, having suffered, indicating the single completed act. He did this for all of mankind. Um, he represented us on our behalf. He was the final sacrifice for sins, a payment to God the Father. As I said this morning, some um, positive confession teachers have taught that Jesus would descend into hell and made the payment to Satan by suffering at his hand. Uh, Fred Copeland, Price, Company, and Hagen, and all them, and it's, it's blasphemous to teach that. Um, he destroyed the authority of Satan as he was able to preach to those who had died in disobedience prior to the flood and even after the flood, and he led captivity captive to those who died in faith and took them to heaven, transferring paradise from Hades to the third heaven where God dwells. The victory was in the flesh, mark it well, his physical body, because he was holy without sin. He suffered having become sin for us. 
and because he became as a man, he suffered in our stead on our behalf. And so the victory of the cross now enables the believer victoriously over acts of sin, and it's called, and it involves spiritual warfare. Notice he says, arm yourself also in the same, with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Did you notice that when you were born again, all of a sudden you had a great difficulty with sin? You didn't have that before you were born again. Because now you're a child of God. And, and, and it's a dying to self. It's a suffering. Um, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, from a life of sin, from practicing sin, um, from living for sin. The believer is given the imperative command to arm himself uh, with the same mind as Christ victoriously over sin and sin nature. Um, not that Jesus had it, but that he, by dying in our place, now enables us having gained the victory, destroying Satan. And so this imperative command to arm is to equip oneself, and the word is used for a soldier putting on his armor and uh, taking on his weapons. Um, many metaphors in the scriptures about us being the army of God, soldiers. Um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 gives you the whole armor, putting it on piece by piece. The word mind here um, means the act of thinking or thoughts. Um, God wants us to re be renewed in mind, to think on those things that are lovely, those things that are good, to put on the mind of Christ. That's where the attack comes in. The enemy told Adam and Eve when in the garden he came to Eve and says, has God said to start turning your wheels? God knows that you'll become just like him. He's just trying to keep you from having fun. He knows you'll be just like him. And so the thought process, we have to be careful. It begins with a thought and it keeps running and then before you know it, we are um, walking hand in hand with the enemy. The mind to put on is the same victorious mind of Christ on the cross, victorious as he again descended and ascended and thrown to the right hand of God. The thinking of Jesus was that sin had no power over him. Not prior to the cross, not at the cross, yet he knew he was becoming sin for us at the cross, dying in our stead, not for himself. And so the thinking of Jesus was that sin had no power over him. And the believer has to be renewed in the spirit of his mind in the knowledge of him who created him in true righteousness and holiness, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24 and Colossians 3, 10. And so that's why we study so that we can put on the mind of Christ. We can know the will of God. We can know what the word of God says about being children of God and heirs of the kingdom. The believer, notice, is given the reason for the command to arm himself with the same thoughts of victory. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, I mentioned this morning that some say this teaches that we're to follow the example of suffering of Christ. But this has already been stated in chapter 2, verse 21. The context here is teaching they were to follow the mind and attitude of Christ with the intent of being victorious 
over sin. This is the context. Because if the example is to be followed of the sufferings of Christ, then we have to apply the statement to Jesus and say that at one time Christ ceased from sin. That would be impossible. Or that if we suffer, that that will somehow cause us to cease from sin. That's ridiculous. So the context is very important. Peter is saying that the believer who has ceased from sin acts of sin, deeds of sin, by having repented, suffers in the flesh, this physical body, be it by false accusation, persecution, testing, temptations, because sin still attracts us due to still having sin nature in us, but we deny it for the sake of righteousness and the will of God being born again, as he said in chapter 3, 14, and 17. And so when we deny our sin nature, what it demands, it's a type of death. We reckon the old man dead, Romans chapter 6. Very clear, verse 6, verse 11. Daily we do this. And again, having ceased means to desist or restrain yielding to sin or living in sin, denying that sin nature victoriously not having to be a slave while in this physical body. Something has happened to me. I'm a child of God now. So the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, the pulling down the strongholds, the casting on every argument and every high thing that exalts itself, listen, against the knowledge of God. Every attack on your life and mine is not against you. It's against the knowledge of God. Once again, go back to Genesis. Has God said? Since you're the son of God, Satan told Jesus in the wilderness. It's always against the word of God. And so we bring every thought to captivity to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. The weapons are not carnal, but spiritual, bringing down the strongholds of the enemy, the attack. Remember that a third of the angels rebel against God and they are um, within the lower atmosphere of the air in this world. Some of them are demons that need possession of a body. Others are merely ministers of Satan that can transform themselves into angels of light and they're false apostles at times and teachers and prophets, so on and so forth. Peter is basically describing the life in the spirit-filled believer, being spirit-minded about the victorious enablement to defeat sin in his or her life as a believer, no longer practicing sin as a habit of life. You don't live where you used to. Now, that doesn't mean that you're sinless or that you have no capacity for committing acts and deeds of sins. We all do. And it's not always the act or the deed Jesus says, if you look upon a woman with love, you've committed adultery. So it's in our mind, because God knows our heart. So we have to make sure we understand that sin is a matter of the heart, okay? Sometimes some husband may, be, may say, you know, I've been faithful to my wife all my life, but have you been loyal? That's a matter of the heart, okay? 
So we have to be careful we don't deceive ourselves. And yet we don't trust our sin nature because it will destroy us. It will take advantage of us. We can't control it, so we have to walk in the Spirit to fulfill, so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, the new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, being filled with the Spirit of God in Ephesians 5.18, putting on the whole armor of God uh, because of the prince of the power of the air and the uh, spirit beings, uh, principalities and powers of the lower atmosphere in Ephesians 6, 10, and 12, and uh, renewing that mind of Christ, as Ephesians 4, 23 tells us. Very, very important. So this is um, uh, also confirmed in the next verse, as we'll see. Um, verse 2, the verification of the victorious ability as described by the manner of life of a believer from the negative first that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men. The life of a believer is a transformed life that we should no longer live the way we used to. Now, uh, sometimes we, we deal with aspects of alcohol and sex and all that, and we'll deal with that as it mentions here. But there are some people that though they are lost and they're sinners, they haven't been involved in that. There are some. There are some good moral people, ethical people. I mean, honorable people. But that's a greater downfall because you think because you are ethical, you are moral, and you are honorable, that somehow you don't need to repent. So sometimes it's harder to communicate to a moral, ethical person a good standing citizen, that they need to repent, that they're sinners, that they die in their sin, they will go to hell. They get appalled, which is really a worse sin, the sin of pride by which the angels fell. And it's a sin against love. And so there was a definite point in time after we heard the gospel that resulted in conviction, confession, repentance, and conversion all that process, all those steps happen immediately, all at one time. There was a definite point in time when our conversion resulted in transformation. The tense here is the errorous active, a one-time completed act of breaking with the life of sin, no longer due to the victory of the cross. I heard the gospel, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God in Romans 10, 17, I understood. God illuminated me. I understood that he died in my place, and I realized I'm a sinner, and I asked him to forgive me. And when I repent from my sins, he makes me a child of God. Now I have the ability to resist the enemy, to resist sin nature, to resist deeds and acts of sin, to bring my thoughts into captivity by the grace of God. All these believers are in Gentile territory. They're suffering under persecution for being Christians. The transformed life is to continue for the remaining time of the believer's life. He says the rest of the time in the flesh. And the rest simply means the remainder from the point where you were born again. I was 23, so... Now I'm 71, all the rest of my life so far, and whatever God has left for me, my life should reflect that I am a child of God. And the word time is chronos, meaning chronological time, which bears fact to our past, present, and future. Now, every believer lives out a transformed life in this same physical body. 
that they used to sin in and sin with. But now they're no longer subject to the flesh, indicating the old sin nature. Okay? I suffer in this flesh body to not be subject and obedient and not render myself to my sin nature's desire and bent because I have the potential through Christ Jesus. No longer living in and for sin as the slave of sin. It's easier for us to understand the bondage of a drug addict who just can't kick it or alcoholic or sex or gambling or smoking. It's hard to give it up. But when you come to Christ, he takes care of all that. Do you know how many times I tried to quit smoking? I never smoked in high school. Then I graduated and I went to work in L.A. at Bank of America. Um, and I started smoking. And every time I wanted to quit, I do it when I get a brand new pack of Winston's. And I'd be driving down the street, throw them out. Maybe it was Wednesday or so. But then came Friday, right? Friday night, partying. And the beer and the smokes go together and the friends. So because I was still in that environment and I wasn't born again, it was very difficult. Now, there are some people that can kick it, smoking and drinking. They just let it go. But it's an example to show you we see people in bondage, whether it be to alcohol, smoking, or drugs, or whatever, and it has a hold of them. And even though whatever it is that they're in bondage to, even though they know that it's destroying their health, destroying their happiness, jeopardizing their job, jeopardizing their marriage, they just can't give it up. Amazing. But when the Lord comes into your life, all that goes. You surrender all to him, and he is more than able. And so the transformed life has a new master, no longer for the lust of men, but the will of God here in verse 2. The lust of men refers to the evil passions of the fallen nature that dominates the life of so many people, as we see in our own society. The phrase is synonymous with the will of the Gentiles that he'll mention in verse 3. Because in the Bible, they're Jew or Gentile. And Paul gives you a third category, the church of God. So either you're Jew or Gentile, not born again, or you're a Jew or a Gentile, and you're now in the family of God. Those are the three categories that Paul breaks humanity into. Those individuals not knowing God nor the people of God, opposed to God and destructive to man. They live for themselves, not the will of God. I did not seek or want to do the will of God. I had no idea about the will of God. Now, I was religious. I mean, when I got hit on my chopper in 1969, November, and I was in a coma for about 12 days, and when I got out of the hospital, um, I went directly to the Catholic Church there in Baum Park. And I went in there and I kneeled down at the altar and I lit the candles and I crossed myself and I said, God, thank you. 
I was sincere. But when I walked out of the church, I went right back to partying. That's being religious. I was adding to my own hurt. But I didn't want to let it go. But when I came to Christ, I was 23. It all went. God took it by his grace, depending on him. Was it easy? No, did you not just hear what I read? He who has ceased from sin is dying. There's a death. Therefore, there's suffering. It is hard. It doesn't come easy. There's warfare. But there's a choice that is made, and now I have the ability to make the choice and to stand firm by the grace of God. And so the believer is no longer a slave of his or her lust, a living proof of the power of God to the Gentiles and friends around them, the hope of salvation. These guys are, majority of them, probably um, some Jews and Gentiles living in a Gentile area, probably most of them Jews, and these Gentiles are looking on, and, and, and they're, you know, it, it was an evidence of what God could do. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you go, wherever I go, like that, God has put us there to demonstrate to people the power of God to live in such a way that pleases Him. Because if you're a Christian, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb when things start happening or if people can observe you for a set amount of time. How you think, how you respond, how you talk, what you do, where you go, who you hang out with, what you do with your money, how you address people, all of that. And God will use that to try to reach others, but the majority of people aren't attracted by that type of lifestyle. In fact, they become mean and hateful at times, as we'll see here. Then he says, lust. The word lust there means strong desires and cravings. The context will always determine whether it's good or evil. And here it's for the, what is wrong, the forbidden of God. It depicts and identifies lost, unregenerate man, depraved, blind, evil from his Jews, separated from God. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. The children are um, born to parents that are saved. They are sanctified by the saved parent, one or both of them, until the age of knowledge. Then they must repent of their sins and have their own relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, God has no grandchildren, only sons and daughters. Um, a life that is open to anything and everything is what describes the life of people who are atheists, agnostics, and religious. Because one does not believe there's a God, the other one explains God away, and the other one believes that God can be pursued even though you live like the devil. They're all deception. The manner of life of a believer that is 
to be exemplified now from the positive is given for the will of God. The word but marks a sharp contrast. The will of God confirms the transformed life, desiring the craving of a life to live for God, to glorify God, a crucified life, denying the sin nature, the deeds of sin and that, that we can stand and end up standing again, reckoning the old man dead. And Romans chapter 6 is very, very clear. Our first 11 verses depicts it very, very clear. Galatians 2.20, the crucified life that Paul speaks about. Um, the will of God is simply the composite of all that pleases God and all that God has best for me. So God desires to direct and guide my life so that I am dependent on him and that I hear his voice and I obey his direction and that what I do, I know that I'm doing through his empowering ability and that he gets all the glory. And that the bottom line is, that it's going to bring the best for me. Not according to the world's perspective. Not according to the world's observation. But according to God's direction and guidance that he gives to me through his word. Through that relationship I have with him. The spiritual warfare is ever present. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, Paul says. So you cannot do the things that you would, Galatians 5.17, the things you would. Before the Lord, the things you would, you did. <laughs> now the things that are presented to you, you can't do them. They're contrary to one another, so you cannot do the things you would have. Now your choice is different. Now your perspective differs. Now your understanding about God is different. You understand about eternity. You understand about sin, about sin nature. The warfare. Second Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Paul tells Timothy, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled or engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlists him as a soldier. And we're all soldiers of the cross. There's various metaphors that are given. We're the bride of Christ. We're the family of God. We're the army of God. With the house of God, many, many different uh, metaphors. Uh, farmers, servants, many, many. And so the time prior to knowing Christ, we live for our own will, not the best for us. For we have spent, he says, enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. And so Paul identifies himself, uh, or Peter here, identifies himself with the Gentiles' believers by the personal pronoun we. Even though he's a Jew with Jewish background, even though he's an apostle, he knows he's a sinner like anybody else saved by grace. That's very, very important. Sometimes Christians, some Christians forget where God brought them from. They exalt themselves above other people. Sometimes, uh, tragically, pastors forget where they came from. And all of a sudden, they start believing their own rhetoric, their own press, and exalting themselves. And somehow they think that they're privileged and elite to be able to live in such a way that, it, that God wouldn't mind, and which is contrary to the scriptures, or exalting themselves above people. And so that's always a danger. And we must be very, very careful. The increment of time, again, is stated enough it means sufficient. 
the juice of Jesus, for sufficient to the day is the evil thereof in Matthew 6.34. The idea is more than enough. The source of uh, our embarrassment, our shame, the deeds and all of that, it was enough regardless of the time that we spent in that life. It was more than enough. We don't have to add to it. There's been a break with that lifestyle. That's what he's dealing with here. And so the period of personal history is said to be our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentile. Regardless where we were raised, how we were raised, what town we lived in and were raised at, we had a certain cluster of friends and, and there was a certain subculture we were in and there were people that we hung out and people that we partied with or people that we, whatever when happened. And uh, um, that, was, that was our past lifetime. And we were running after the course of the world, the prince and the power of the air, as Ephesians uh, uh, 2, 1 and 2 says. And uh, we were our own little gods. We made our own little calls. And so the word will means that what one wishes or determines to be done, it includes one's desires, pleasures, and inclinations. So in other words, as you know, when you lived in your father's home and your mother's home, you had, for the most part, let's take an average home that was in America at one time. There was morals, there was ethics, there was boundaries, there was curfews. There was uh, responsibilities to take care of your bedroom, make your bed, wash the car, mow the lawn, feed the dog, whatever it is. And, um, and, and those restraints that your parents gave you, you obeyed. And there was an accountability and there was a motivation of both love for your parents to not hurt them. And there was also a fear of your father which is a good balance, okay? But even under those two things, once your parents were out of sight, they were out of mind, okay? And then you did what you wanted to, hoping and believing you were smart enough not to get busted. You convince yourself, all of us, that, you know, I just know how far to go. I know where to go. But you know that that's self-deception. Because as we did so, we added more hurt to our lives. And we added hurt to other people's lives. And uh, God's been amazing through the years um, you know, it's been 47, 49 years almost. And um, sometimes I run into people that I knew in the world, and, and I, I've, I've gone up to them and, you know, told them I'm a Christian, and I apologize for the things that took place and everything, and I ask forgiveness. And some of them are very gracious, say, yeah, don't worry about it, and others are shocked that you would say that. Now, I don't go searching the people out but when I've come across them okay and even in some circumstances you have to use wisdom because if a per person's married in that you don't want to go stir up a hornet's nest so you want to use discretion okay my sins have been forgiven 
but whenever possible, when I can, to ask forgiveness and um, confront the person, uh, then I, I feel compelled to. And this is something that God would have to lead you to. It's not something that, um, that I'm saying you have to do always. But um, the Lord is gracious. And so the humanity of the Gentiles were ignorant and void of the will of God. Prior to Christ, um, all of us living in sin and for sin on whatever level, prior to Christ, every person living for self by virtue of that sin nature. As I've mentioned many times, the trinity of darkness, me, myself, and I. And prior to Christ, every person is living out what he or she wills in rebellion to God as one of these Gentiles. The time priority is important. Now we're new. The time prior to Christ was a life of, Lotus, he says, recklessness. He says, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. You would think, well, oh, that doesn't happen. It does happen today. Every generation happens. These were common things. The culture may differ in terms of what goes on, but those activities always go on. Their past life had been entrenched in sexual sin when they walked in lewdness of lust, walking, leading one's life in order, having walked literally. And um, the idea behind this beginning point, having a destiny and a goal to accomplish that goal. Um, the commitment to our sin nature was to press and progress and not be static so that we can accomplish what we want to get whether it be in relationships with a, with, with a girl or with a man or trying to get drunk or trying to steal something or whatever it is. Um, the word here, lewdness, again, means unbridled, excessive, outrageous, shocking, shameless, indecency. And if you uh, can remember back wherever you came from, you know, when you grew up in home, you know, if you had um, moral parents or good parents that directed you and and chasing you and uh, brought consequences to you. You had a sense of morality, a sense of consciousness. But once you grew up, if you start messing around in one way or the other, you start callousing that conscience. And then pretty soon it doesn't bother you. And what you would never believe you would ever do, you end up doing. It's a progressiveness. It's like scars, you know, I've got scars on my arm from the world and all that, and, and where those scars are, you know, you lose sensitivity. It's uh, where you get burned. It's seared. The Bible speaks about your conscience being seared with a hot iron. It no longer bothers you. It's not sensitive. It's kind of asleep. And that's what happens. Sin kills our sensitivity to God. All you have to do is look to the outrageous, outlandish um, permissiveness of pornography um, in our country as a means by which to make a living. Uh, certain states, prostitution is absolutely legal. It's amazing. And so the word for lust means desires, cravings, or longings with, in view of sensuality, inward passions of evil sense, um, 31 of the 38 times is translated lust. 
And so the context is for the forbidden regarding sex here. It's in the plural as well as the, all six of the things that are mentioned here. And so in other words, when people get pulled into the sexual world, and as we'll see it tied in with the gills and the idolatry, um, they are just perverted in every way and, and, and experiment anything and in everything. And, and you become more destructive, uh, more of an enemy to society and God, for sure. The past life had been entrenched in drinking alcohol, he says, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, where drunkenness simply is overflowing. And we know that, uh, you know, you started, they don't call um, a hard liquor spirits for nothing. Um, you know, you drink, it's a depressant, it's not a stimulus, and it causes you to uh, lower your inhibitions, your morals, and you do things uh, that you shouldn't, and you say things, and sometimes you play along with it and play it up, and sometimes you drink so much that it's no longer you in control. You just don't even remember what you did sometimes. I think sometimes the cop-out, I think people do remember, but once in a while you keep going far enough, and you drink long enough and enough enough, and um, you're not going to remember. And so revelries means causing um, carousing in the nocturnal and riotous procession, have drunken, and in those days they would, uh, after supper, parade through the streets all drunk and music and honoring the god Bacchus. Bacchus was the god of wine. And so we have it today. It's called uh, uh, spring break and, um, and higher education and university campuses. <laughs> it's amazing that the campuses of the university would tolerate such living and such debauchery when they're paying such, so much money to get an education and they're burning all their brain cells. How many young girls and guys end up dead, raped, violated? But you've had four years of that. By the time you get done, you're pretty numb. You're pretty well able to do whatever you want now. There's nothing bothers you. It's amazing. Drinking parties, found only this time in this form, means uh, bouts, competition. As I said this morning, who can drink the most, who can drink the fastest. Um, when I was growing up, you'd shoot beers. You just put them and you make a hole, you pop the thing and it shoots down your throat. Now they have the holes, everything out. There's always, you know, innovation, progression of of inventions and you just get stupider and stupider and uh, it's amazing. But you know what's interesting is that the violence and the amount of drinking has increased in girls and females more than men. Women have, have come to feel that they have to compete with men so they want to talk like men, curse like men, act like men, drink like men have sex like men any way they want, and then they want to be respected. Amazing to me. Now, having said that, you know that the grace of God can make you a brand new creature, right? By the grace of God, if you haven't gone too far, if you do repent. God is able to do that. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, some of you were homosexuals, you were this, you were that, and drunkards, but now you are cleansed. Now you are sanctified. And so that's very, very important. So though we hit sin hard when the scriptures are talking about, 
we have to understand that Jesus came to save sinners. And Paul says, of which I am the chief of sinners. Wow. Amazing. Their past lives were entrenched in idolatrous feasts and worship, abominable idolatries, um, illicit, uh, unlawful things, um, worship of the false gods. Um, all the religions were fertility religions for the most part. And um, the feast and the worship included sexual orgies and in the temple of Aphrodite and Corinth. There were the women who came down, the prostitutes at night. And Paul the Apostle tells him, listen, when you guys, uh, ladies that are born again, wear a covering over your head to demonstrate that you have a head, you're married, so you're not confused for a prostitute. And the women say, well, we're Christians, isn't that? Okay, well, th then shave your head. No one's going to confront you that way. He says, oh, we don't want to do it. Well, then put the veil on. Now, if we had the temple of Aphrodite here, I would tell you, ladies, put a veil on. If that was the culture here of Jewish so that people understand that you have a covering, okay? And so all these temple rites, and then these guys became Christians, and all, all of a sudden they don't go to these temple orgies. And many of these guys were tied to their crafts of idolatry and different uh, things, and they were guilds, and they would require you, so then they would marginalize you and mark you, blackball you, like the unions do. <laughs> no different. Nothing new under the sun. There are other lists of sins that are found in Romans 13, 13 and Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now here in verse 4 through 6 now, the response of the unbeliever to the believer's commitment to life in the Spirit Notice in four, the unbelieving Gentiles were observing the transformed life of the believing Gentile in contrast to their past life in regards to these. These look back to their manner of lifestyle. They refer to the life of sin they had forsaken. Uh, what once characterized their life when we walked in lewdness and drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, focusing again on sexual perversion, abuse of alcohol, and socially religious Perversion, okay? This is the world that they live from. And so these people are looking at these guys, and they're not living like that. They're being light. They're being salt. These Gentiles had a, a life-altering experience called being born again. Some of you used to be out there, way out there. And when you became born again, your friends just, they heard about it. They didn't believe it until they talked to you or they saw you and they just felt so sorry for you. Others got mad at you. Others insulted you. The world cannot handle the light of Jesus Christ. It doesn't want anything to do with it. Darkness hates the light because it exposes their evil deeds. These Gentiles had a life-altering experience. They had ceased from sin as a lifestyle of habitual habit. They were no longer living the rest of their lifetime under these things, the lust of men. They had spent enough of that past lifetime um, for the Gentiles. And so here in 4, the unbelieving Gentiles were having 
um, a hard time understanding why the saved Gentiles did not live the same way that uh, they used to live. They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Their mind could not comprehend what they were seeing by the phrase, they think it's strange. It is one word in the Greek, and it means two things. To receive as a guest, to entertain and be hospitable, translated lodge or lodged seven times in the New Testament. And Peter lodged with Simon the Tanner, same word in Acts 10.6. Some have entertained angels unaware. That's the word too in Hebrews 13.2. And the second thing is to be surprised or astonished by the strangeness and novelty of a thing appearing two other times in the New Testament. For Paul preaching the gospel at Athens indicated them as some strange thing in Acts 17.20. The Areopagites, the Athenians, they just stood around to hear new things and strange things. Wow. Peter later will say the believer is not to think it's strange concerning fiery trials that try them in chapter 4, verse 12. The context of our text means the unbelieving Gentiles were surprised or astonished at the lives of these saved Gentiles being a witness of the power of God, as Peter said in chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 4. That is your life. That is my life as people observe us. And you live in the same way. It's static in Christ Jesus, though you're growing in maturity and in growth, while the world is moving forward and downward in depravity and self-dependence and humanism and those things that stand against God. Living a holy life, living for the will of God. Ephesians 2, 2 says, In times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit that, of, that works now in the children of disobedience. All of us were there at one time. Now notice their minds cannot accept their changed lives that the, un, that the saved Gentiles were not running presently with them in the sinful lifestyle as they once did. The word run there means to run together. The present um, participle active here in the negative, the idea of casting oneself or plunging a total abandonment. The measure and degree notice or extent of the sinful lifestyle is indicated by the phrase, the same flood of dissipation. The same degree and manner in which they are living and that which you used to live in. They're scratching their heads. The word flood is overflowing or pouring out appears only this time in the New Testament in this form. And the word dissipation means an abandonment and, um, and dissolute life regarding sin and evil. And um, we've come to a place in our nation where this is common things. As you see, much of the music that has just degenerated. Um, there's no love ballads. There's nothing like that. It's all just vulgarity. It's pornography and verbal form and 
It's just ridiculous. Um, the, the, everything has just gone pagan, gone backwards, uh, degenerating society. This word dissipation is um, again the prodigal son in Luke 15, 13 as he went out, took his inheritance and spent all his money with his friends and, and with ladies and everything. Three times the word appears in the New Testament to prohibit sinful practices. Um, Titus 1, 6 and 1 Peter 4, 4 and also Ephesians. Now, notice the unbelieving Gentiles therefore slandered the godly Gentiles speaking evil of you. The phrase speaking evil means to speak reproachfully, to rail at, revile, culminate, or blaspheme. Peter uh, will use it again in chapter 4, verse 14. Um, he will use it three times in the second epistle. Um, the judgment hurled upon them was in re rejection of the gospel and what the gospel had produced in their lives. They didn't want anything to do with the gospel, and they didn't like what they saw in their lives. Not believing they were sinners, and, and, and not needing repentance, not believing the will of God to be better than the will of the Gentiles. First uh, Peter 4.14 says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And on their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. And so this was fulfilled, uh, the fulfillment of the words of Jesus, if you remember. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, in Matthew 10, 22. Paul the Apostle immediately preached the gospel, and um, um, people were hearing that the man that used to destroy the Christian in the church now preached Christ in Acts 9, 20, and 21. They were astonished. Amazing. And Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews, it says in Acts 9, 22, and 23. And as you know, he spent three years in Arabia, Jesus discipling him, and he became a, a, a mighty instrument of God. The unbeliever feels offended and threatened about their philosophy of life, humanism, atheism, agnosticism, whatever it may be. They, um, they want nothing to do with the gospel. Once again, darkness doesn't like the light because it exposes that. And so those who have spoken evil about the Christian witness will answer to God, he says. They will give an account to him, the plural pronoun, they, um, is reflexive, pointing back to verse 4. Those who think it's strange, uh, believers do not run with them in the same form of evil as they did one time, so they speak evil of them. Those who reject and speak speak evil of the life of believers will face God one day, marked by the phrase, will give, one word in the Greek. It means in the context to pay off or discharge what is due, an indicative future. So every word, every thought that a person has, every deed that they commit, if they don't repent before they die, they will have to give an account to God. God is not going to wink at anybody's sin at all. If he's holy, he has to judge every person and everything. 
if it's not covered by repentance in the blood of Christ, <clears throat> it will have to be an account given by the individual. That's a horrible, horrible thought. The personal responsibility is marked by the word account, appearing 330 times in the New Testament and can be used for the mind regarding reason, the faculty of thinking, meditation, and calculating. The account is logos, also used for speech, word, a discourse or doctrine. It's used for Jesus. In the beginning was the word logos. The word became flesh. John 1.14, same word. And so the particular context of our text means that their idle words explaining their false judgments of the believer, including their thoughts, in view of the measure of light they have received, according to Matthew 12, 36, and 37. To those that much is given, much more is required. And so those people who sit under the teaching of the Word of God, those people that have been uh, uh, exposed to the church and Christians, God will hold them in greater judgment because they have a greater measure of light. And the one to whom they will be personally responsible for for their words and motives is indicated as him. The fact of the personal pronoun indicates God. Jesus said, but I say to you that for every idle, worthless word men say or speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned, Matthew 12, 36 to 37. Stop and think of the stupid things and the evil things we've said and done and that they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. The one that will judge the entire human race of God, he says, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Second person of the Trinity, Jesus, will judge every person. James concurs with Peter. He is ready to judge. Behold, the judge stands at the door, James 5, 9. Jesus said, for the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son, John 5, 22. Paul declares to those on Mars Hill, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him up from the dead, Acts 17, 30 and 31. Jesus will judge all men. And the judgment regards what is right according to God in view of eternity. The word judge there is crino, of to pronounce sentence. God has given every man a conscience, creation, history. They are sufficiently responsible with that, let alone the gospel. The gospel tells you you need to be saved. You reject that. You're sinning against love. And so it's appointed to men to die once, and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. The judgment, notice, will have to do with all a person has ever done, as we said before. Um, God judged our first parents for their sin in Genesis 3. Um, he will judge every person. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good, Psalm 14.1. Paul picks that up in the book of Romans. The judgment of God is according to truth, according to deeds, and according to without partiality, according to the gospel, Romans 2, 2, 6, 11, and 16 tells us. The judgment is for all human beings that have ever lived. The living and the dead simply means all of humanity. 
Peter stated this at the house of Cornelius in Acts 10.42. Paul affirms this in Romans 14.9. The phrase the living and dead are also identified two distinct groups, those who were physically alive and those who had physically died. Those who were physically alive and those who had physically died would take place in every generation until the Lord returns. Paul confirms this with Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1. Those living when Christ returns to the earth and those who have died before his return. So this encompasses all the chronological time from the crucifixion until he comes back. And he will judge every person that's ever lived. Again, Paul confirms this. I charge you there, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and kingdom, 2 Timothy 4.1. And so the phrase living and the dead equally dis distinguishes two judgments regarding the scriptures. For the unbeliever at the white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verse 7, 11 through 15, and the believer's judgment at the Bema Seat of Christ for reward in Romans 14, 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And the judgment of the believer would be the motive of the heart in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. The motive, not what you've done, not how much you've done, but why and how you have done it and I have done it. The motive. And so the reason the gospel was preached is stated for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. The reason looks back to verse 5 because men will have to give an account to God both living and the dead. The phrase the gospel preached, we get the word evangelism from it. The tense is the indicative passive. In the past of those who were physically dead at the present. Everybody has a chance that they die. The gospel reveals to sinful man two important things. That man is under the wrath of God, being a sinner, and that God has made a way to be forgiven and redeemed by repenting in the name of Jesus Christ. The fact that one of the gospels, or that the gospel was preached um, to those physically dead, it goes back to verse 5 there to verify, it's verified by the grammar. The Greek grammar is the dative position here for emphasis and has no article, even to the dead men. And so while people are alive, though they're spiritually dead, then they'll come to a place where they die physically and it's no more opportunity, okay? And so the gospel's for the living, those who are alive physically, though they're spiritually dead, that they might be alive spiritually so when they die physically, they can live eternally with God. That's the whole goal. And so there are those who have to do... Um, works they believe to be saved, and yet that's completely uh, rejected by the gospel. Um, notice the purpose of the gospel being preached is stated, that they might be judged according to man in the flesh, but live, or to live according to God in the spirit. So the gospel is preached to those in the past, and now they are physically dead, that they might have repented, some did, some did not. It happens like that in every generation. Um, the word crino again 
uh, the same word as in verse 5, to pronounce the sentence. The forgiveness that comes through repentance was during their earthly lives. Don't let anybody tell you there's a second opportunity after death. Impossible. Blasphemous. The gospel was preached to those in the past who were now physically dead to live a life transformed by God. And those that make that decision, they are new creatures. They are examples of Christ. They live a life abundantly. And those who hear and reject, they live under the judgment of God. And if they die under that judgment, they will be judged at the white throne judgment. And so uh, the emphasis of Peter is clear. Peter is uh, vindicating the faith of those believers who believed the gospel in the past and suffered persecution at the time. Even these guys. Peter is saying that even though the unbelieving Gentile condemned them for their godly living, God did not condemn them, but in fact justified them, imparting to them eternal life. Peter is saying that the believer preaches the gospel to his, um, by his life and the grace of God for the purpose of reaching those who are lost, that they might repent. And so the message of John the Baptist and Jesus was repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, the heart of God is that you repent and not perish, Ezekiel 18, 30-32. Turn, turn, turn. Why would you perish? Turn and live. That's the heart of God for sinful man. And so that's what he does. That's what he always proclaims, and he will never change until he returns, and then when judgment comes, there is no second opportunity. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ, we pray that you would repent from your sins and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for your grace, your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you just deal with our hearts, and Lord, for those that do not know you, whether they're here or over the Internet, Lord, that you would speak to them. They understand your grace, your love, and that you died for them. And the Lord, as they call on your name, you will forgive them and you will make them new creatures. And so I left them to you. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God would have you to call on his name, to repent of your sin. And that's something only you can do. No one can do for you. So if you're out there and you want to be born again, this is a simple prayer of repentance as you ask God to forgive you and make you his child. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.